0: Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Cross. Let's dive in. Howdy y'all. What is up? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. And y'all, it is a good week. And you're thinking to yourself right now, Chase, why is it a good week? Well, I'm going to tell you why it's a good week. Uh, it's a good week for a few different reasons. Uh, first and foremost, because God is good, and every week is good. Just depends how you look at it, and it's a super cheesy answer. But anyway, that's it. Uh, but the second thing, also, this is the last week of school here at St. Teresa's. For those that don't know, uh, this podcast is sponsored and run by St. Teresa Catholic Church and School. I am the uh, director of youth and young adult ministry here. And so it's the last week of school year, which means... I'm going on vacation for the next two weeks. So what does that mean for the podcast? Well, it means for the podcast, there's not going to be a podcast for the next two weeks. What does it mean for me? It means I'm going to take two weeks to chill with my fam jam, read some books. We're going to uh, on a little beach vacay to Gulf Shores, Alabama. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, Chase, why are you going to Alabama? It's because Gulf Shores, Alabama is about 30 minutes, 45 minutes west of Pensacola, Florida. And Florida's beautiful, which means Gulf Shores is equally as beautiful. It's just cheaper. Um, so a uh, very exciting time in the Krauss household. And if you're not going on vacation at any point in the next two weeks, I'm sorry. I will enjoy it for you. Hopefully you go on vacation soon. I actually just got done reading this book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Um, fantastic book. You should read that book if you haven't. It's by this guy named Piper. Uh, Pieper? Piper? I don't really know how to say his last name. He's German. Um, but anyway... Leisure being the basis of culture, you know, really just saying that, you know, as human beings, we need to rediscover this ability that's in in our, in our nature to have leisure. And leisure is not laziness. Leisure isn't recreation. Leisure is the ability to to contemplate the good, true, and beautiful, right? Uh, and the only way you can have leisure, though, is if you're not just constantly working, right? So if you are constantly working, if you're constantly stressed out, if you're constantly just blowing and going, You know, take some time for yourself. Have that leisure. Have a nice glass of wine, maybe some whiskey or some bourbon. Smoke a nice cigar. Go on a nice hike. Have leisure time where you can contemplate the God, the good, true, and beautiful. Uh, With that being said, we are man. I was, I was trying so hard to finish this uh, journey. And man, when we created them this week, because it's like I'm going on vacation. Like, let's just wrap it up this week. And I just, I, I was like, no, I'm just going to do it. We're going to end with today's episode doesn't matter what i'm skipping and then i like just kept reading ahead kept looking and i'm like uh i need at least one or two more episodes to feel like we we did it you know we got through everything we needed to get through um so that being said we'll have a two-week little hiatus and then we're going to come back and wrap up man and woman he created them uh we've been doing this for a while which is kind of exciting um and i have our next mini series in the work but stay tuned for that one i don't want to give it away um, cliffhanger! Bring you back in three weeks. Uh, but anyway, uh, today, and man, when we created them, we are actually getting into JP2's undelivered addresses. So JP2 has a section of addresses, an audience. Oh, I think it's like 103 through 113 or 115 or something like that um, on his commentary in the Song of Songs, and he actually wrote these, but he never delivered them. Um, and so, you know, audience, he, audiences, you know, one through 102, 103, he delivered, and then he delivered a conclusion. Um, but uh, there's a section in here with Song of Songs, Tobit, uh, he actually never delivered, uh, but he did right. Um, and so we're going to get into the Song of Songs today. Um, and so a few things with getting into the Song of Songs, right? Um, it's Old Testament, obviously. And this is one of those books where as a as a biblical wanna be biblical scholar like I am. And the reason I say that is cuz I have a master's in biblical theology. I don't have a doctorate and I just I can't get myself to call myself a theologian because uh, I just have a master's and I've met theologians who do this professionally with PhDs and they are just way smarter than I am. So I just, I'm not going to call myself a biblical theologian. I'm a want to be biblical scholar. Um, and so as somebody who's a want to be biblical scholar, I spent a lot of time in the song and songs of this, in the song of songs or the song of Solomon, whatever you want to call it during my master's for a few reasons. Um, the, the original reason I spent so much time in it was because it's just such a fascinating text, and it's so beautiful, and it's so rich, and it's, it's just kind of, it's very visceral text, right? And it's just, it's, I think anybody who reads it is at least, uh, you know, intrigued by it. Uh, but then as I, as I kept researching and studying it, you know, the, the next thing that really caught my attention was how many people vehemently disagree on what the Song of Songs is about. And so, what do I mean by this? Well, the question is you know, there was an original human author of this text, right? There was an original human author of this text. What was their intention, right? Why did they write this text? So there's a few different theories out there floating around in the biblical scholarly world Um, and in the Catholic tradition too. There's saints who disagree on this, right? Um, So one thought that's held by uh, a lot of uh, Israelites, now Jews, um, is that it's an allegory of God and Israel, right? of God's relationship with Israel, right? Um, and later on in early uh, Christian history, the church fathers, uh, some viewed this text as an allegory of Christ and the church. Some viewed the text as an allegory between Mary and the Holy Spirit. Uh, others viewed it as um, God's relationship with the soul. Um, and so uh, as you know, historical critical scholars, scholarship kind of came back up, up into play. Um, you know, the argument was made that it's, you know, it's, it's literally written about a man and a woman. Um, later on, some scholars would say that it was actually a, a love poem written from King Solomon to his uh, one of his wives, the daughter of Pharaoh. Um, other scholars have put forth that it, it was originally a series of Egyptian love poetry that the Israelites adopted and made their own. Um, And then uh, a really, really recent uh, theory is that it's an allegory between God and the temple, right? And that kind of encompasses a few of them. But anyway, long story short, you get the idea. There is no consensus on what the original purpose of this text is about. It is an extremely difficult text to read. And if anybody reads this text and thinks you instantly know what this text is about, you have not read it carefully, right? You have not understood what it's talking about. You haven't caught all of the many, I mean, just references to various places of the Old Testament. If you're watching this, I mean, I don't know if you can see this in my Bible, but there's a lot of blue, a lot of words, a lot of underlines, a lot of other biblical references here. Um, And so of just my own personal study. And this is just, I honestly only really wrote down the ones because I have a certain opinion on what I believe is the original Intent of uh, of the text, uh, which I might get into at the end of this this episode. I want I don't want to say it, uh, right away, um, but you know, in reading this in light of Pope Saint John Paul II's theology of the body, we'll start with what he thinks about it. Right, so he believes that it is a text about a man and a woman, about a husband and a wife. Right, uh, he doesn't say it's about Solomon necessarily, even though uh, for the longest time. The Solomon was thought to be the original author of this text. Um, there's problems with with that view now when you actually look at the at the Hebrew um, and some some other kind of close knit stuff in there. But um, needless to say, there's an argument to be made that it has Solomonic origins and that it was later kind of developed. So maybe Solomon did write something like love poetry similar because we have we know that Solomon did write a lot. And so maybe it was oral tradition later finally put down by a scribe. So it has Solomonic origins and then got, got developed throughout history. Um, so that is a thought. So with that being said, um, you know, the song of songs, the great song, right? That's what this this book is about. Um, and so a lot of different ways you can look at this. But for JP2, what, what he did, he really only spends about, oh, I don't know, eight, ten audiences on, on this book. And he even says at the end in the last one, he, his goal isn't to give a commentary in the traditional sense of the text. Uh, he really just wanted to see how the Song of Songs fit within the sacramentality of marriage um, and within this what he calls the language of the body, right? What he calls the language of the body. So one of the things that he points out early on is that when you actually read the text, right? And we're actually gonna read chapter one in here in a second. We're not gonna read the whole thing, even though it wouldn't take me that long. It's only eight chapters. Um, but when you read the text, we have this sense of the bridegroom and the bride viewing each other and really seeing their beauty, right? And JPT is going to expand upon that before we get into it. Let's just read chapter one here, um, and then and then we're going to talk about some of it. Just and this is going to really set the stage for the rest of the book. So we read this: the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Oh, that you would kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. For your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. I am very dark but comely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am swarthy, because the sun has scorched me. My mother's sons were angry with me and they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who wanders beside the flocks of your com- companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your kids beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare of Pharaoh's chariots, Your cheeks are comely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a bag of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly lovely. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. Okay, so if you didn't know, Song of Songs is really a, a series of dialogues, right, between the bride and the bridegroom, and we don't get clear just like title headers um, in most Bibles because it's it's uh, name it's it's a you can have arguments about when the bride and bridegroom speak, but most people agree that it's 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 a conversation of poems between the bride. And the bridegroom or the lover and the beloved, right? The lover and the beloved. And so you instantly see, even in this first one, we have some archaic language, right? But I think everybody can agree that this language of love is a language of yearning. It's a language of beauty, right? Right? even in the more archaic terms, like, you know, we all, it's always uh, funny when you read um, your neck is like the tower of David and your, your, your teeth are like, you know, sheep's flocks and all these, all these things you can kind of snicker at now, but we can, we can see the artistry, right? We can see that the original author is using what he views as beautiful in the world of his surroundings to express his love to his beloved, to his bride, right? To his, to his beloved. And so, JP2 says, love unleashes the experience of the beautiful, right? And I think this is so intuitive. And when we're talking about theology of the body here. When we're talking about a biblical interpretation. You know, I think so often we abstract theology of the body and keep it intellectual. But, but really, the, the more we understand this, and hopefully if you, as you've been following along with this mini-series, you've understood that all of the things we've been studying should make you more passionately in love with your spouse. Right. If because if we if as husbands we're truly called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and if, if women you're called to receive the love of your husband as the church does Christ, right? That's a passionate love. That's a fiery love. That's an unbreakable love. Right. And so this, this conversation between the lover and the beloved, the bride and the bridegroom, right? The one, the pursuer and the one who is pursued. This love unleashes the beauty. I, I think we get that, right? I think we get that because I think you know you you can walk around any mall in America, or any beach or any park, and you can see other attractive people, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not lustful to say that somebody else is attractive or beautiful. Everybody is beautiful in one sense or another, but it, it's normal to see another person and you know the opposite sex and say, yeah, wow, like they're they're gorgeous, they're beautiful, they're pretty but it's different when you love them. Right, it's different when you love them. Um when I when I first laid eyes on my 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 wife, I remember to this day, I thought she was beautiful. I thought she was gorgeous. Right. But on our wedding day, when I saw her walking down the aisle to me, y'all, I was like bawling. It, it makes me like tear up even just talking about it now. I I was She was so beautiful. And my love for her was was being fulfilled finally, right? And I think we've, if you're married, hopefully you've experienced this where, you know, hopefully you thought your spouse was attractive um, when you first saw them, when you first started getting to know them. But as the love deepens and as the relationship grows, love unleashes beauty you see them for who they are, right? And JPT even acknowledges part of that is physical, right? And that's good. You should be physically attracted to your spouse. But also you you truly start seeing the beauty of the other's eye, who the other person is in their entirety, in their femininity, right? Or their masculinity. And so, you know, chapters one through four is really, they just go back and forth about the other person's beauty, right? And even chapter four, we, we have, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come forth from the washing, all of which bear twins and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an arsenal whereon hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Um, And so he goes on and just, just keeps going on about how beautiful, beautiful he thinks she is. But then also... Uh, within the Song of Songs, we have this other theme, right? Uh, and it's this theme of sister and bride. And so we see it for the first time in four uh, seven. So we read this. You are all fair, my love. There's no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinair and Hermon, the dens of lions, and from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with the glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips distill nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And it goes on. Uh, just a quick aside, uh, Hebrew boys weren't allowed to read this book until uh, they were at uh, the age of manhood, uh, because, uh, uh the Jews and early Israelites, or Israelites, um, thought it was a little bit too much for he, the Hebrew boys to handle. Um, and remember, uh, that one of the commandments in the, in the Torah, right, which all Israelites held onto, whether Sadducee or Pharisee, uh, was, uh, you weren't allowed to masturbate, right? We read this in Genesis. It was that, um, one of the was it Genesis, or was it an Exodus? Forgive me, um, but anyway, it's a story of um, there was a man um, who uh, didn't um, f- didn't consummate with the with the woman he was with. Instead, he uh, his seed. It says his seed fell on the soil, right, purposely, and then he was killed for it, right. And so the Israelites interpreted that as as masturbation is sinful, right, uh, and, con- and and contraception even if if you're an Orthodox Jew. Um, and so, you know, Hebrew poison, because it is very, it's visceral language, right? But it's the language of love. It's the language of the body. And it's such important language. Um, and so we have this idea of, of sister and bride. So we have lover and beloved on one hand, but then we have sister on the other. And that's weird language for us, right? Like what do you, what, why is he calling her sister? And JP two uh, gives a few different potential explanations for this. Uh, in one sense, it's actually pointing back to the beginning. Right, which JP2 is always doing. Why? Well, Adam and Eve had the same creator, right? the same father, if you will, God. God created both of them. So in a certain sense, they were brother and sister, yet man and wife. Um, and not in a weird way. Don't, don't make it weird. Um, but also, JP2 points out uh, a deeper reason behind it was because when you actually look at you know Song of Songs uh, 8, what is it, 8, um, Chapter eight, verse eight, we read this. We have a little sister and she has no breast. We shall do for her, our sister on the day, I'm sorry, what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her battlements of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Um, alluding to if she's chased or unchaste, right? And so why, why call the beloved all of a sudden a little sister? Well, for JP2, he says, it's because to show that the beloved that the bridegroom sees or sorry the, the the lover the bridegroom sees the beloved for who she is as the person it's not just a purely lustful desire that the, that the bridegroom or the lover has for the beloved while yes he is extremely infatuated by her by her beauty by her external beauty by calling her sister, he is also acknowledging the fact that it's not just her external beauty that he sees and loves and longs for. It's, it's for herself. And so, and really, so it, it's, it's for the, the peace of mind of the beloved, knowing that her lover, her pursuer, her bridegroom sees her, all of her, right, not just her body, but truly sees who she is, right? And so this idea of, of a sister and a friend too, right? It's another word that he uses elsewhere. It shows kind of the progression of love. Because why? Well, friendship implies equality. You can't be friends with somebody who you see yourself as superior as. Aristotle has, a, you probably heard this, the three level, levels of friendship friendships of uh, pleasure, utility, and virtue. And friendships of pleasure, it's just you have a good time. You can hang out with the other person. You enjoy some similar stuff. Um, But if that common third is taken away, like say you love watching football with a football buddy, right? But if football's taken away, you have really nothing in common. It's a friendship of pleasure. There's also friendship of utility, uh, which is like a work friendship, right? I mean, even, even me, I have relationships with some coworkers here. Um, and we're, we get along just fine, but we're probably not going to go get a beer after work or anything like that. It's a friendship of utility or think of like, if you have a business partner or, uh, somebody you, you do business with a lot, you you can be, you can be friendly, maybe even take them out for a beer every once in a while. But if it wasn't for the business relationship, you probably wouldn't be hanging out. Uh, and then you have friendships of virtue and Aristotle says you really only have a two, maybe one, two or three of these in your entire life. Namely, somebody you see as totally equal and you want their best for, right? You want them to grow in virtue. They want you to grow in virtue. And your goal of the friendship is to make the other person more virtuous. Um, and so, and none of these are bad, by the way. It's not like one is higher and more superior than the other. They're, they're just three different kinds of friendships that we all need. And so for the bride and the bridegroom, they start as friends. We read this elsewhere. This friendship, though, is a friendship of equality, Right, because that friendship is you. you have to be equal to be friends, Um, and we've all seen this too, right? Where if you're in a you potentially new friendship, but all of a sudden the other person just always talks about themselves and always thinks they're better than everybody else, the friendship tends not to be too great. Um, And then we have this idea of sister, right? Uh, Namely, this also equality, right? And also JP two points out that love seeks common denominators. When you and your spouse, if you're married or engaged, um, when you first start dating. You're you're asking, you know, well, you know, where did you grow up? What do you ha- what interests do you have? You know, you're seeking common denominators, right? And the idea of sister implies common originality, right? Namely, God as the point back to Adam and Eve, um, but also uh, common, you know, parentage, if you will, that you 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 have you're, you're equal in more than one sense, um, but not in a literal way, obviously. And so, love seeks common pasts. Love seeks the whole person, um, for the sake of the beloved, right? And so finally, the last thing we'll talk about, and the last thing JP2 talks about, and I know we're like super breezing over a Song of Songs, and that's okay. You should read it. It's a good book. Um, it, it, JP2 calls it this, uh, the revelation of femininity. We actually read this in uh, chapter 6, verse 13 through 7-7. Seven, seven. So we'll start in 13. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of the master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of of Bathrabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowering, your flowing locks are like purple, a king is held captive in the tresses. How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, the electable maiden, you are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters and so j p two he points to this, and <laughs> you know it, it's this revelation of 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 the beauty of femininity, right? And we ask ourselves, and this is one of the things where you know we could probably do. 15 million episodes just on, on the Song of Songs. We ask ourselves, you know, why is this book in the Bible, right? And this is the, the question that um, I grappled with for a long time until I, I've come to my current view of, of what this book, is original authorship, is, is for. Because it's in, it's in the wisdom literature. and the wisdom literature, you know, it's all about applying the law to your life, right? The book, of, the book of wisdom, right? The Wisdom of Solomon, Psalms, Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes. Um, these are all books that are trying to a- apply the Torah, the law, uh, to, to the Israelites' lives. And so, why is this book in the, in the Old Testament, right? And so, you know, in spite, and, or, you know, because of JP2's interpretation of, of that is this is between man and woman, if it is, it's trying to show the Israelites the depth of true love between a man and a woman, right, of of a husband and a wife. And so um, the final declaration of love for JP2 is is chapter 8, verses 6. and Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. It flashes or flashes of fire, almost vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly scorned. So why is this the, the pinnacle for JP? Well, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Love has met its purpose and unity. The two have been sealed together and are made family forever. And this erotic language of, this, of these poems, of the Song of Songs, It's an er, an eros that leads to agape. It's a passionate love which leads to unity and leads to this reciprocal gift, right? And so with that, um, we'll end with just my two cents uh, on on Song of Songs. Uh, I actually, (laughs) I disagree with Pope St. John Paul II uh, on the original uh, authorship and the original purpose of this book. Um, which is one of the very few times I disagree with uh, JP2 on stuff. But uh, like I said, there's, there's, what's the original purpose of this book? There's, there's a theory of God and Israel. There's a theory of, you know, a, a Egyptian love poetry of man and woman of Solomon writing to Pharaoh's daughter um, of, you know, Christ and the soul of Mary and the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, Christ and the soul, Mary and the Holy Spirit are kind of easier ones to dismiss uh, because the original author did not know Jesus, Right it was this BC days. You know what I'm saying? Um, now the divine author could have had that in mind. None of these interpretations are wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying they're wrong. They could be spiritual interpretations or interpretations that God as the divine author did truly mean, but the human author is what I'm talking about here. And so my, uh, view, uh, is greatly influenced by Dr. Michael Barber. Um, and other, other, some other scholars that he introduced me to. And my view is that the, the book of Song of Songs was actually an allegory between God and the temple, um, which includes the interpretation of as between God and Israel and God and humanity, right? Because why? Because the temple represented Israel, but also represented the whole world. Um, There's a lot of reasons why I think that Um, a lot of them stem from uh, just the language of the descriptor of the beloved. Um, A lot of the same words are the words used to describe the temple in Hebrew. Um, and a lot of the fragrances described are the same fragrances they would have burned in the temple. Um, I, it, I also, you know, it's one of those things where even John of the cross thinks that this is about God and the soul. Um, like I said, I think that can be a beautiful spiritual interpretation. I don't think it was the original intent of the human author. Um, but anyway, you should read it and see what you think the original author's intent was. Um, I'm not going to make a big defense of why I think what I think. I think JP2's interpretation is beautiful and amazing and really, really applicable to man and woman he created in theology of the body. Um, But yeah, biblical scholarship, it's fun. Fun fact, after Genesis and the Psalms, this is, I think, the third or fourth most uh, argued over text in the entire Old Testament. And with that, thank you for listening to Catholics with Bibles. We'll see you next time in three weeks because I'm on vacation. God bless everybody. All right, y'all. Thank you so much, man. We ran out of time quick on this podcast. I could talk about song of songs all day, but I just really want to express once again, a word of gratitude for everybody who listens to this podcast. It really means a lot. Uh, It really means a lot. Everybody who's left reviews. Um, It really helps people find us. So please, if you haven't leave us a review, please subscribe. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Catholics with Bibles. God bless.